Okay. Good afternoon. And uh, this week we are in Parshat Chaye Sara. This is the fifth Parsha of the book of Genesis, of the book of Bereshit. And it's the third Parsha that we are focusing on the life of Abraham Avinu, of Abraham, our patriarch. Uh, in Parshat Lech Lecha, well, in Parshat Noach, we learn of his birth, but there isn't much detail about him. Parshat Lech Lecha, we learn about the, the command. God instructs him, Lech Lecha to leave his land, leave his father's home, and to go to the land that he will show him. Finally, that parsha ends with the command of the bris, of the circumcision. Last week's parsha, we learn of the revelation to him after the circumcision. And uh, finally, at the end of last week's parsha, we learn about the Akedah, the binding of Yitzchak on, on the mountain Moriah, right, in Jerusalem. This week's parsha is mostly not about Avram, but it's about Avram's servant, Eliezer. Uh, after we learn about the tragic passing of Sarah at the age of 127, and after she was buried, Avraham wants to find a shidduch, wants to find a wife for Yitzchak, for his, for his son, and um, he calls over his trusted servant, Eliezer. And he, he administers an oath. And that oath is that Eliezer should find a wife for Yitzchak only from Avraham's family. Eliezer had wanted that his own daughter should marry Yitzchak. But Avram rejected that uh, suggestion, and he said, I would like to find someone from my own family that lives all the way in Haran, which was a long journey far away from the land of Israel, the land of Canaan at the time. And um, he tells Eliezer, look, this is your job, to go and find this wife, the perfect girl for Yitzchak. So the Torah tells us that Eliezer takes 10 camels laden with wonderful things. And he sets out on a journey. Now, a journey that should have taken him several weeks takes him less than a day. He leaves in the morning. That evening, right before evening, right before dusk, he reaches Padan Aram, the area of Haran, which was the place where Avram's brother Nahor had settled. And Nahor's son, Besuel, lived there. And Besuel had a daughter, etc. So Eliezer is coming there to find the mystery girl that is meant to be Yitzchak's wife. Eliezer comes to the outskirts of the city, and he's standing next to the well. And here something very strange happens. He has a conversation with God. And he says, God Almighty, I was sent here by my master Avram to find the perfect match for my master Yitzchak. This match needs to come from the right family. I am going to make a test. The girls are going to come out now to draw water from the well. The first girl that I will ask to provide water for me, the first girl that is going to offer me water, that is certainly the intended wife for Yitzchak. This is a wager. He has no idea who the first girl is going to be. But he, said, he tells God, this is, uh, you know, this is my plan. And um, even, before, even before he finished speaking, uh, the Torah tells us Rivka is going out to the well. And when Eliezer notices this girl, he goes over to her and he says, would you give me a little bit of water? 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a traveler. I haven't, uh, you know, I need water. And immediately she takes the water jug off of her shoulder. She offers it to him and she says, not only will I provide water for you, but I'm going to provide water for all of your camels as well. And she goes to the well and she starts to fill up the troughs of, of you know, the, the water troughs that, that were there um, so that the camels could drink. And, and the Torah records that Eliezer was amazed. He was like, wow, the first girl that I asked for water, she offered me water. This might be the person, but he needs to know if she's from the right family. And so he asks her, tell me, what family are you from? Can I stay over the night? And she says, I am the daughter of Besuel, who is the son of Nahor. And sure, you could stay overnight. And when he heard this, he was like, wow. The first girl that offered me water, and she happens to be from the right family, amazing. So he goes, he follows Rivka to her home. And now he starts to act like a shadchan. A shadchan really is the negotiator between the two sides. And so he, they offered him food. He said, I'm not going to eat until I tell you my story. What's my business here in Kharat? And he tells him the whole story in all of its detail. And interestingly enough, the Torah records the entire story, even though we already know the story. It records Eliezer's words saying basically verbatim what happened. And he tells him that he came to Haran this evening. He left this morning. He arrived this evening. And he, he made a deal with God. He made a test. And um, the first girl that he asked for water, she offered him water. She happened to be the right girl. And so uh, he would like to uh, suggest the match between Rivka and Yitzchak. And uh, Besuel who was uh, Rivka's father, as well as Rivka's brother, Lavon. They were the ones that were uh, dealing with the negotiations. They had one thing to say. May Hashem Based on the story that you're telling us, it was from God. Only God could arrange that you should arrive and at the outskirts of the city should meet this girl and she should offer you water. And from all the girls of town, it should be the one that you're looking for. This is obviously, may Hashem God was the one to orchestrate these events. And so we can't, uh, you know, we are not going to obstruct God's plan. And they agreed to the Shidduch. This is a very fascinating concept. May Hashem the, the realization and the appreciation that that which happens in the world around us is not happening by mistake. It's not by chance. It is something that is orchestrated directly by God Almighty. Now, here's the thing. What exactly is orchestrated by God? In this story of, uh, of, of the Shidduch of Yitzchak and Rivka, one can argue, we're talking here not just about any people. We're talking here about Avraham, Yitzchak. We're talking here about Rivka. These are very important people. So it would make sense that God would get involved in the nitty-gritty details of how the shidduch, of how the match happens. Eliezer was no, no, no lightweight. Eliezer was the, the most important student of Avraham. He was the one that would take Avraham's teachings and make it relatable to the, to, to the masses. He was a very important person. And so one can argue that the story that we learned in this week's parsha is only an indication that there are some people that God gets involved in their lives, that God gets involved in, in, in the details of how their lives play out. How is that really an indication of all humanity? And in fact, there's a very fascinating 
philosophical discussion that dates all the way back to the times of the Talmud. And uh, it, it evolved over the generations. And essentially it boils down to this. Very, very early on, it was an accepted fact that God is intimately involved in the details of, of the lives of, of Jewish people, of the lives of important people. But uh, the billions and billions of people out there, whatever, they're just like, uh, I don't mean it this way, but like packing nuts. You know what packing nuts are? You know, like just to package things up and uh, whatever. You need to have billions of people out there in order, to, in order to provide for the world, in order to make this world an interesting place. So God puts a bunch of people. But there's only a select few that really make a difference. But then that, that uh, view evolved. Um, and in fact, Maimonides uh, comes to the conclusion that the idea of hashgacha protis, which means divine providence, specific divine providence on everything, that applies to the human race. All of humanity, every single individual, everything that happens in their life is ordained by God. All of the details of those uh, occurrences are all orchestrated by God. What's fascinating about this approach is that it is the complete opposite of the approach that led to idolatry. You see, for thousands of years, we were trying to clean up the mess of idolatry. What was the mess of idolatry? When God created the world, Adam believed in God. He had a conversation with God. But then after a few generations, the philosophers of the time came to the conclusion that, of course, the world was created by God. But you think God is really intimately involved in what's going on in creation? God has better things to think about. He has better things to do. And therefore, he um, delegated the job of dealing with this world to the sun, the stars, the moon, the constellations, they deal with the nitty-gritty details of nature. And therefore, since they are the ones dealing with it, if you want to get an extra piece, if you want to get more, if you want extra attention, you have to pay attention to the sun and to the moon and to the stars. And that's the whole thing of, 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 of um, worshiping things that we see worshiping uh, certain elements of nature as deities, that's where it all originated from. It didn't originate from atheism, from not believing in the fact that God created the world. They believed in God, but they felt that it would be unbecoming of God to be involved in the nitty-gritty details of nature, of the, of the humdrum, continuous details of, of you know, just the seasons and, and feeding everybody, etc., so comes Judaism, comes the teachings of Avraham, and argues exactly the opposite. It says, no, God created the world, and God is still intimately involved in all of the details. But he's involved in the details of that which is important in creation. What is the most important of creation? The human race. Humanity, which are the, you know, we are the ones that are able to uh, lead the world in a certain direction. We develop the world, etc. So God is involved in the nitty-gritty details of what goes on with the human race. Let's read it in the source in Maimonides. If you go to page five in the handout. This is a quote from the Guide to the Perplexed. Maimonides wrote many books. His main book was the Mishneh Torah, which is his book of Jewish law. It's important to understand this. There's a big distinction between his book of Jewish law and the other books that he authored. Hmm. Um, 
the Guide to the Perplexed was written originally in Arabic. And um, the focus of the book, the theme of the book, was aimed at those who were exactly as its name is, perplexed. Uh, it wasn't really geared towards those that had a very strong foundation and belief in God. The, the, the tone of the Guide to the Perplexed is a more of a philosophical type of tone, but it is legitimate Torah scholarship from Maimonides. Um, today, I mean, over the generations, it's been translated, etc. So here, here goes from Maimonides, source number one. I believe that divine providence does not extend to the individual members of species, except in the case of mankind. It is only in this species that the incidents in the existence of the individual beings, their good and evil fortunes, are the result of justice in accordance with the words, for all his ways are judgment. But I agree with Aristotle as regards all other living beings, as regards to plants and all the rest of earthly creatures. For I do not believe that it is through the interference of divine providence that a certain leaf drops from a tree. Nor do I hold that when a certain spider catches a certain fly, that this is the direct result of a special decree and will of Hashem in that moment. It is not by a particular divine decree that the spittle of a certain person moved, fell on a certain gnat in a certain place, and killed it. Or is it by the direct will of Hashem that a certain fish catches and swallows a certain worm on the surface of the water? In all these cases, the action is, according to my opinion, entirely due to chance, as taught by Aristotle. Now, I'd like to also give a little bit of a, um, context to, to, how, to, to what Maimonides is trying to say. Maimonides is not saying that spiders have no place in God's divine providence. In fact, there's a famous story told in the Talmud that King David always wondered, when he was a youngster, he always wondered, why did God create the spider? What goodness can come to the world? What benefit does the world have from the fact that there is a spider? And, um, and God told King David, he said, one day you'll understand. At a certain point, uh, this is a, fa a famous story to those that are familiar with this part of the Bible, that uh, after, he, when King Saul was king of Israel, but as a result of, of, of certain uh, misbehaviors, it was taken away from him, and he was uh, Samuel the prophet told him that he would no longer be, be king very soon, and David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. So at a certain point, King Saul was chasing King David, was trying to kill him. And King David was running for his life. And one time, King Saul's men were, they were hot in pursuit. And King David ran into a cave. And as he ran into that cave, all of a sudden, a spider started to create a web on the opening of that cave. And by the time King Saul's men came to that specific cave, they saw that it was filled up. The opening was filled up with a spider's web. And so they thought to themselves, it's impossible that, King, that David is in here because then this web wouldn't be here. We would have to tear down the web in order to get inside. So they skipped over that cave and, King, and, and that saved King David's life. So at that point, King David learned what benefit humanity can have from a spider and the webs that the spider makes. So spiders, everything in this world has a place in God's divine providence. 
But Maimonides is saying here, and the guy to perplexed is, true, the spider has its place. But there are millions of spiders. How many spiders do you need to save King David? One. There was one incident. Maybe there are other incidents where certain spiders save people's lives or do other things. But usually there are billions and billions of spiders out there making webs in all random places. And that is not something that God specifically decides. This spider is going to make a web in this specific way, in this specific place, at this specific time. That's not something God decides. That's just the way of nature. God set it in motion. He created spiders. They create other spiders. They give birth or whatever, whatever spiders come into being. And, um, and they make webs. When God needs a spider to make a web for a certain person at a certain time, God will make sure that there's a spider there ready to do what has to be done. So what Rambam is suggesting is saying that when we talk about individual divine providence, specific divine providence, that refers to people. Not just special people, all people. Every incident in their lives, everything that happens in their lives, that's something that was ordained by God. However, that doesn't extend to other species, doesn't extend to animals, to insects, to plantation, and especially not to rocks and to water and things like that. Generations later came the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov said, no. Baal Shem Tov taught that when we talk about divine providence, this extends to everything. Now let's hear from the, in the, a quote from the Baal Shem Tov's teach, teaching, source number two. Our master, the Baal Shem Tov, taught regarding divine providence that all movements of all creatures occur with the detailed guidance from the Creator. And this detailed divine providence is the life source of the creature and its source of existence. He goes even further. He says, it's not just that God is a micromanager and is plotting out everything that's going to happen to every single thing in this world. It's even more than that. The fact that God is plotting out every single situation of every single creation, that itself is the life of every single creature. The reason why the spider lives, the reason why the spider exists, is because God is plotting out every single movement, every single episode of its life. That itself is what gives it life. And moreover, each movement of each creation has a profound purpose and is intrinsically bound to the wider purpose of creation. Now, this is a bombshell. What the Baal Shem Tov is saying is that look at this world like, like a painting, for example, or look at this world like a machine, like an airplane, or like a space shuttle. Let's take a space shuttle. How many wires, how many, uh, how, how many uh, screws, how many bolts, nuts, are there in a space shuttle? Millions upon millions and upon millions. And if you'll ask the engineers that put that space shuttle together, they'll tell you every single one needs to be there. They'll say, wow, look, there's like 15,000 heat, uh, you know, the, those, um, those uh, uh, what are they called? 
those um, rivets, tiles, the heat tiles. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The outside, yeah. those tiles, the heat tiles, the heat shield. They say, wow, there's like 15,000 of them. What would happen if just one of them wouldn't be there? Unfortunately, we know what happens when only one falls off. Billions of dollars, and most importantly, six or seven lives are destroyed because of one tile that fell off at Blastoff. In other words, the Baal Shem Tov tells us this creation, this world, every single detail of it, not only is it important, not only is it mapped out by God, but if that detail won't be there, nothing else can function properly. If that specific episode won't happen in that very specific way, it's going to have ramifications for all of creation. So not only are we saying, not only is the Baal Shem Tov saying that every single detail is mapped out specifically by God, in addition to that he says that itself is what gives existence to all of these details of creation, and even more than that, every single detail of creation and every detail of what happens to every detail of creation is, is intrinsic to the overall picture. For example, Basham gives an example. There may be a simple movement, a single movement of a blade of grass growing in the forest or on a tall mountain or in a deep valley where no person has visited. Yet each movement to its right or to its left or forward or backward throughout the span of its existence is determined by divine providence of Hashem's command. That this specific blade of grass should live a specific amount of days, uh, months, days, and hours. And during its lifetime, it should wave to the right, left, forward, and backward in this specific pattern. Not only is that mapped out, moreover, the detailed movements of this blade of grass are linked to the general purpose of creation. Now, this is a very profound and revolutionary teaching. First of all, it, it, it's really uh, out of, out, you know, it's totally uh, different than what Maimonides taught. And it's actually very different than what most Jewish uh, teachers professed for, for thousands of years. So this was challenged. It was challenged, and rightfully so. How could the Baal Shem Tov say such a thing? How could the Baal Shem Tov suggest that when a blade of grass the Himalayas goes to the right and to the left, that has a profound impact on um, big issues, big things. And if this blade of grass won't go to the right and to the left, that will have effect on the overall purpose of creation. So someone once asked the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Hasidus, who was a student of the Baal Shem Tov student. So he had the Baal Shem Tov, he was the founder of the Hasidic movement. After his passing, his student, Rabbi Dov Ber, who was known as the Magad of Bizrich, he led the Hasidic movement for 13 years, and then he passed away. And after his passing, so the Hasidic movement branched out into many different uh, offshoots, and the one who was considered to be the leader of them all, and he was the one that started um, uh, you know, the, the Chabad movement from within the Hasidic movement, 
That was Rabbi Shner Zalman of the Adi, known as the Alter Rebbe. He was the author of the Tanya, etc. He was actually one of the biggest defenders of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings. He called himself the Baal Shem Tov's grandson. Obviously, he was not his biological grandson, but he was a spiritual grandson. To the point that when he was arrested on charges of high treason, and he was being interrogated, at one point they asked him, are you a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov? And he knew that if he would, if, if he would deny any connection to the Baal Shem Tov, they would free him immediately because the entire libel that had been built up against him was all predicated on the idea that he is a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. And if he would deny any type of connection to the Baal Shem Tov, they would free him immediately. And it would save a lot of money, a lot of heartache. And um, him staying in prison was, in fact, a threat to his very life. But the, Shem, but the Alter Rebbe, without hesitation, said immediately, of course, of course I'm his disciple. And he explained later on that he could not bear the thought of, of separating himself from the Baal Shem Tov, even for a moment, and even if just to save his life. The Alter Rebbe was all about taking the Baal Shem Tov's teachings and, and, and spreading, spreading them forward and teaching them to as many people as possible. So he was once challenged, and they asked him, where do you, where do you see any type of source in the Talmud, in the Torah, for such a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, that every single blade of grass is, is specific, that there's specific divine providence for anything beyond humanity. So he said, without hesitation, he said it's actually a very clear Talmudic passage. Let's see source number three. When Rabbi Yochanan would see a shalach bird, a shalach bird is a certain bird that, that basically hunts fish, so like it, you ever seen these videos of fish you know, going towards the water and it grabs a fish and the bird you know, goes away, has, has its prey. So whenever he would see a shalach bird scooping fish out of the sea, he would say, your judgments are even in the great deep. Rashi, who was the great interpreter of the Talmud, explains, what does that mean? What was Rabbi Yochanan expressing? For you orchestrate the arrival of the shalach to carry out your judgment and retribution, and to kill the fish that are destined to die. Suggesting that every morning, or whenever it is, God decides that this little fish and that little fish and the other little fish is going to die, and who is going to be the executioner? This bird. So this specific bird is going to swoop down and catch this specific fish at this specific moment that's mapped out by God. And then let's continue to the next paragraph on page 7. Uh, this is a quote from the Tzemach Tzedek, who was a grandson of the Alter Rebbe. And he commented on this verse that's found in the Psalms and this explanation of Rashi. He said like this, Based on this, my grandfather, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, would respond to those who claimed that divine providence pertains only to humans, and that was based on their understanding of the guide to the perplexed. He would say no. From here, we have a clear source for the faith of fish is also divinely ordained. All right. So that is, um, so, so we have um, the, the, the approach of idol worshipers that we reject entirely. I mean, they, they basically say that God has no interest in this world at all. And therefore, we have to serve the sun, the moon, the stars. This is what Avram Avinu, our patriarch Abraham, came and basically rejected that idea. And explained that, oh, God is involved. We have the story of our parsha, where you have everything working out just perfectly for Eliezer to find Rivka. Um, and uh, 
and and Besuel and Lavan, two heathens, were basically saying, wow, this came from God. Now, this is a beautiful story of divine providence. The only thing is that we're talking here about special people, Eliezer, Rivka, Yitzchak, Avraham. So it makes sense that God would be involved in their lives. However, Maimonides explained to the guy to the perplexed that this is true about all human beings. All human beings, everything that happens in their life, it's mapped out by God Almighty. Animals? Trees? Stones? No. <coughs> That's not mapped out by God. God put everything in a system. God maps things out in the general sense, but the specifics, that's not God's uh, interest. The Baal Shem Tov said, no. Baal Shem Tov said that every single creature, every detail of its existence, not only is it mapped out by God, but it's part of the, it's part of the purpose. It's part of the bigger picture. And we also find a source for this in the Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan, when he would see a bird scooping up a fish, he would make reference to the idea that God Almighty was the one that decided this fish is going to be killed by this specific bird. So we see that Ashkacha Pratis extends beyond humanity. It also applies to other species as well. But now let's try to understand why we must believe it in this way. Okay, so you have a source from the Talmud. But what is the logical... Um, the logical explanation that makes all other approaches seem irrelevant. So the Rebbe actually explains this brilliantly and simply. Let's read uh, source number four. We've often brought a similar example from our, from, our own, from our own lives, a simple example from our lives. A successful homemaker doesn't only manage her home well, ensuring that every item has a specific place and purpose. She also ensures that every item is integral to the overall theme of the home, that everything is exact with nothing lacking and nothing unnecessary, which doesn't serve the purpose of the home. All right, we have a lot of different people here on the, on the call, but I'll tell you, you don't walk into the kitchen and start moving things around because everything is there for a reason. Don't just say, eh, now we don't need this pot, we don't need this pan. No, 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 there's a reason for it. And there's a reason why it's there. Oh, and by the way, a successful homemaker, the moment that something is not needed, boom, so throw it away. Why? Because it's not needed, it's just going to clutter. So we have that in our own lives. In our own homes, we want to make sure that whatever is there is the right place, and whatever is there is serving a purpose. And if it's not serving the purpose, we get rid of it. If this is so, I'm continuing in the Rebbe's words in Source 4 in the second paragraph. If this is so in the life of a literal homemaker, how much more so and infinitely so with the creator and director of the universe? No doubt everything that takes place in God's creations are with him, are with his direct supervision. And moreover, each creation is integral to the overall purpose of creation. God is no less particular than any homemaker. If not more so, because God is perfect. And so God is the perfect homemaker. God created the world and all of its details. And every single part of creation was created in a way that it should serve a specific purpose. And not just the general existence of this blade of grass serves a purpose. Every movement of this grass serves a purpose. And before we get to the actual um, part of the Fabrengian that, we, that we're going to read, I'd just like to point out, at the very end of this, uh, of this handout, 
on page 11, uh, there's lyrics to a song that was uh, composed by a, a very famous Yiddish composer. His name was Yom Tov Erlich. Uh, he lived in the you know, 20th century. He went through the war. He came to the United States. He lived in Williamsburg. I don't know, I don't know exactly when he died. I think it was in the 80s or something. And he was a very famous Yiddish entertainer. He, he was a rabbi, uh, and, he, and he composed many, dozens and dozens of Yiddish songs with a lot of very rich Jewish content. One of these songs was explaining this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. I'm not going to go through all the details, but essentially the, the point that he makes in the song is that there was, uh, there was a tzaddik, a, a righteous person, who was walking down the street, a sage, and he sees, all of a sudden it's windy, and a little leaf you know, is disconnected from the tree and it falls down to the ground. And so the tzaddik, he says, wow, what an injustice that the leaf had to be separated from its source of life. Why did that happen? So he goes to the branch. He says, branch, why did you disconnect the leaf from you? Why did you allow it to fly away in the wind? He says, I don't know. The tree forced me to go like this. So he goes to the tree. He says, tree, what, what's going on? Why are, you, why are you abusing your branches? And as a result, you're losing your leaves. So the tree says, what are you asking me? Go to the wind. The wind was blowing. I couldn't hold the wind back. So he goes to the wind. He says, wind, why did you blow so, so uh, violently? So he's, uh, the wind tells him, he says, why are you talking to me? Go to the angel who's in charge of the wind and go speak, to the, go speak to the angel that caused me to blow. So he goes to the angel and the angel says, why are you talking to me? God told me to blow. God told me to allow the wind to blow in a certain way. So he goes to the God and he says, God, what happened over here? Why did you cause the angel to cause the wind to blow that the tree should sway and the branches should go back and forth and all of a sudden this little leaf, what did the leaf do? Such an injustice, the leaf was was taken off of its branch. So God tells him, says, go to that little leaf and pick it up. So he picks up the leaf and under it, there's a little worm. And so God tells him like this, this little worm was crossing the road. And it was very hot. And at one point the worm prays to God and says, God, do something because I'm about to burn up over here. It's so hot. I can't cross this road myself. It's too hot. So God said, therefore, I told the angel to let the wind blow, to, to beat against the tree. And the tree, you know, the branches were going back and forth. And the leaf disconnected from it in order that the leaf should fall on top of the worm to provide shade for the worm so that the worm would not die from the heat. The story never happened, but it illustrates this concept. The fact that a little leaf is blowing one way or another, there's a reason for that happens to be in the song, in the lyrics of the song, it's in order to save the life of the world, right? But you never know. We will never know why everything happens in a certain way. But according to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, and based on how the Alter Rebbe sources it in the Talmud, and how the Rebbe explains it in very simple logic, like that of a homemaker, just like a homemaker is very specific, God is also very specific, we understand that every single thing that happens is ordained by God Almighty. So with that, let's go to page two, and we'll read through uh, the Fabringen. Divine providence for fish, the Rambam's opinion. When a person travels from one place to another, his interest lies only in the points of departure and destination, while the areas he must traverse are secondary to his ultimate goal. However, our sages teach us, even in the revealed parts of the Torah, that even the journey itself has a purpose. 
when he travels to fulfill a mitzvah, he is awarded rewards for his steps. And every step creates another positive angel and so on. It's not just about getting the mitzvah done, getting to shul and saying a prayer, getting to the poor person's home and bringing them money. Every step that we take in doing that mitzvah is all a part of that mitzvah. This idea is reflected in the Baal Shem Tov's view of divine providence, as opposed to the opinion of Rambam, Maimonides, and the guide to the perplexed. Now, it is important to point out a distinction between Rambam's guide to the perplexed and the Mishnah Torah on Jewish law, which is the main, uh, uh, the main work of the Rambam. The rulings in Mishnah Torah have been accepted as Jewish law, and therefore you can't really argue on them in principle. Uh, there is there's differences of opinion of which laws would apply in certain situations, but in principle, they cannot be challenged. While certain teachings in the Guide to the Perplexed are not to be interpreted literally, and some even come from mystical elements of the Torah, where matters are evaluated from a higher prism. So the Rebbe is saying is that while we are not going to reject the Rambam's teachings as false, but certainly they have a different way of, of uh, being understood, based on later teachings that came from great Hasidic masters, which uh, forces us to reevaluate what, the, what Maimonides meant in the Guide to the Perplexed. And we're not going to go into how to re-understand or re-evaluate his teachings, but the point the Rebbe is saying is that I'm not outright rejecting what the Rambam wrote, we just need to understand it in a different way. In regard to our discussion, according to, according to Rambam in Guide to the Perplexed, there are certain creations that do not have a unique purpose of their own. Rather, they are created out of necessity. For example, worms that emerge from rotten fruit are simply a result of two other creations that were created by design. What are these two creations? Fresh fruit and rotten fruit. It so happens to be that if fruit goes rotten, worms come out of it. But the worms weren't the purpose. This guides his view of divine providence as well. According to the Rambam, God orchestrates the general course of events, but minor details, will a certain fish in the sea be swallowed or not, are not included. The two concepts are tied to each other. Not everything is created with a direct purpose, and therefore not everything is included in divine providence. That's Rambam's view. However, continuing in the next, in the next section, however the Baal Shem Tov taught, that every detail in the world is guided by God's hand. Even those creatures that seem to be a result of another creation, like worms from rotten fruit. It's not that there is purpose in fruits rotting, and God set in nature that rotting fruit produce worms, so automatically some worms are created. Rather, every single creation of such a worm is directly orchestrated by God. God knows every worm by name. And that little worm that crawled out of that rotten fruit, it was time for a little, <laughs> I say, Betsy the worm <laughs> to come out. God had that on schedule. It's not that God wanted fruit to rot and therefore worms happen. God wanted this little worm to come into being. This is not about Shemto's innovation, God forbid. It is an ancient Jewish belief with foundations in the Talmud. As we discussed at our previous gathering, the Alter Rebbe was asked about the source of the Baal Shem Tov's opinion, because Jewish law cannot be based solely on Kabbalistic teachings, and he pointed out the teaching of the Talmud that we read earlier in one of the sources, when Rabbi Yochanan would see a shalaf bird scooping fish out of the sea, he would say, 
their judgments are even in the great deep. For you orchestrate the arrival of the shalaf to carry out your judgment, their retribution, and to kill the fish that are destined to die. Right? These are all quotes from the Talmud and from Rashi. Obviously, the fate of that single fish isn't coincidental because judgment and coincidence are a contradiction to each other. Everything is mapped out in a very specific way. The Baal Shem Tov's view on divine providence is that it doesn't change the specific being, whether animal, vegetation, or inanimate object. Rather, it supervises from above to determine whether the fish will be snatched up or not. And this explains his view on the purpose of creation. If there is divine supervision over every single creation, there is clearly a purpose in its creation as well. This is one of the only topics, whether all creations are, uh, have purpose or not, in which the genius of Ragachov argues against the opinion of the Ramba. Uh, there was a man who uh, was known as the, the genius of Ragachov. Um, he passed away in the mid-30s. He lived in, I believe it's a Polish or Lithuanian town called Dvinsk. And uh, he came from a Chabad background. And the Rebbe had uh, a very interesting relationship with him. Uh, he started uh, a, a correspondence with him in his early teens. Um, in fact, this correspondence is published in the Rebbe's uh, Torah correspondence. And uh, later on in life, the, the Rebbe met him several times. Uh, and the Rebbe would quote him extensively. I mean, he had a very, very unique way of, of teaching Torah, of innovating in Torah. And Maimonides was one of his main uh, heroes, if you can say it in that way. And typically, the Ragat Shavar, as he was known, uh, would, would follow the approach of Rambam to many, at, to many things. He, he, he liked the, the attitude of, of Maimonides. But this was one area where he disagreed, and he... Uh, he, 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 uh, he agreed with the approach of the Baal Shem Tov. He maintains that even worms which emerge from rotting fruit, which are permitted to be killed on Shabbos, are created with a purpose, and he applies various proofs from the revealed part of the Torah as well. Okay. So the Rebbe is, uh, you know, making a synopsis of the history of this very important philosophical discussion. Does God pay attention to all of the details of creation or not? Maimonides says no. But the Baal Shem Tov says yes, a resounding yes. And there are sources for it from the Talmud as well. So now, what does this have to do with us? I think it's pretty obvious, but let's hear how the Rebbe uh, articulates the idea. This serves as a lesson to teach us. A person might only see value in his prayer and Torah study each morning, or in his charitable donations at the end of the day. He might think that only they have divine providence, only they have unique purpose, and that he will be rewarded specifically for those deeds, especially if he gives charity happily, because then he is blessed with 11 blessings, as quoted in the Talmud. So when he is doing something that is, um, that is, uh, I say, transparently divine, transparently holy, transparently Jewish, that has purpose. That's where I'm living a Jewish life. However, all other engagements, like engaging in commerce, seem to be an unavoidable nuisance. He must engage in commerce in order to give charity. So his business is only a conduit for the real mitzvah, giving charity. So a person might approach the mundane areas of life, you know, as, okay, well, let's get over it. Let's finish it already. So the Baal Shem Tov teaches us that there is divine providence in every creation, 
and all the more so in every element of the life of a human being. Indeed, the ultimate goal is to give charity, pray, and study Torah. But all other engagements have purpose as well, for there is divine providence at every step and detail. This provides us a, 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 how you say, a good way how to be mindful throughout the day. Sometimes we can think that, okay, when am I going to have mindfulness of God? When am I going to be mindful of purpose? When I pray, when I study, when I'm engaged in doing a mitzvah. But here the Rebbe is teaching us that, no, this, this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov tells us that 24-7 we can live a life of mindfulness. We can live a life that has purpose. There is purpose in stopping the car at the gas station and filling it up with gas. Yeah, there is purpose to that. There is purpose to me signing this check and that check or calling the plumber because there's, there's an issue in the business or whatever it is. There's purpose to everything. Everything could be used out to serve God, even though you can't see on the surface how it serves a Jewish purpose. And uh, actually, just to show you how everything goes with divine providence, this morning we had a Tanya class. We were learning the chapter 41 of Tanya. And I didn't even realize, but this is what's going to be quoted now at the end of this teaching. At every moment of the day, God stands above you and inspects your deepest recesses to see whether you serve him and not simply serve him, but serve him properly, as stated in Tanya. Thus, even something that is a conduit to a mitzvah has a unique purpose of its own. This is a very profound uh, teaching for life. We have to realize that everything, everything that happens, number one, everything that happens comes from God. So first of all, we're not in control of what's going on. So there's no reason for us to get stressed and have anxiety and things like that. It's not easy. But when we, when we understand this idea well, when we appreciate this idea, that the fact that the leaf turned over, and especially the fact that, you know, world events are happening. There's a reason for it. It's not a jungle. Things aren't out of control. There is a very specific master plan that's playing out in every single detail of creation. And so number one, that provides us the, the confidence that we need to live through life in a happy and confident way. But even more important, it's for us to realize that everything that we do can serve a higher purpose. Everything that we do can be transparently a part of God's master plan. And therefore, we should value everything that we do, every interaction that we have, and ensure that every one of them is done the best way. Just like the artist, he makes sure that every single stroke of, of, the, of, of the brush is perfect and exact in order that the painting on the canvas should come out exactly the way it should. Each one of us is holding a little brush and is painting on God's big, big tapestry. And if our brush is going to go in the perfect manner, to the perfect way, then God's master plan for creation is going to be perfect. Thank you all for joining us. It was a pleasure seeing you all this afternoon. Any questions? Too many, huh? That, that, that worm wasn't the special worm that cut the stones. No, no. It was just a plain old annoying worm. Okay, just, just making sure.
<laughs> Thank you. See you tomorrow. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Rabbi Rochelle, you want to say something? I was wondering actually earlier whether the reference to the blade of grass leaning left and right was a reference also to the Tanya this morning. It could be. Yeah. Everything just comes together. Everything comes together. Amit, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was wondering about the Rambam. You know, he say uh, he have a different opinion and, and you know, he's a very wise person. So somebody can be wrong but follow him uh with thinking that uh, he's always right one day he, did he come back one day and say that maybe he wasn't correct on his thinking that's a very good question this is a general question with regard to many things that um that over the generations um, in previous generations, let's say about 800, 900 years ago, there was a specific approach to certain things. This, this mainly applies in, in Jewish philosophy, more in the Kabbalistic teachings. When it comes to Jewish law, there's a, there's a very different, uh, there's a, how do you say, there's a way how things play out. And it's very possible that a later sage can overrule the rulings of a previous sage. Uh, but in general, the, the general uh, approach to these issues is that when it comes to Jewish philosophy, it's, it's an accepted fact that as the generations go on, deeper ideas emerge. So it's very possible that, um, in, in fact, that everyone said this, and I don't know if it was about this specific issue, I, I think it was actually, that as the generations go on and deeper ideas are revealed and articulated in Torah, and they're sourced obviously in Talmudic sources, so then the previous ideas become essentially taboo. In other words, today, after the Baal Shem Tov explained uh, the idea of divine providence and, um, and, so to speak, proved not just Talmudically, but also philosophically and logically that uh, this is the only way really to understand the idea of divine providence, because if you would suggest that there's a blade of grass in the Himalayas that's going back and forth, right and left, uh, without a purpose, then that's kind of basically saying that God is less perfect than a homemaker, Right. So They're limiting God by saying that otherwise. Right, exactly, exactly. In other words, it's kind of a primitive approach to think that the blade of grass is outside of God's purview. That's primitive. That's limiting God. They thought back then that with this, they're liberating God. But the Baal Shem Tov came and revealed that, no, on the contrary, the more that we appreciate and understand how every single detail of creation is ordained by God, that brings much more perfection and wholesomeness to the entire creation. Yeah. So, so that, that's the idea. It's, it's a very good question, a very uh, legitimate question. It's something that's dealt with. And this is essentially the, the typical approach. And when it comes to Jewish philosophy, uh, as the generations go on and deeper philosophical insight is brought to the table, uh, there are certain points where uh, certain things were, were established that this, this is the way uh, to approach it. I mean, we could be here for, for another, you know, hours and hours. But in fact, Maimonides himself, um, there, there were many that, that uh, argued with Maimonides on, on the, for example, 13 principles of faith. Maimonides set down 13 principles of faith to, to say that if you want to be a, a legitimate Jew, you've got to believe these 13 principles. Now, his contemporaries argued with him. His contemporaries argued with him. But history has proven, in other words, within Jewish teachings and tradition, 
that once Rambam articulated these 13 principles, they become the principles of faith. And so anyone after him that wants to argue on that is kind of beyond the pale. Anyone before him could have thought differently, but Rambam kind of set down a certain standard. So in our generations, 300 years after the Baal Shem Tov already set down that standard, today for someone in 2020 to go and say, I'm going to reject everything, I'm going to go back 850 years to how the Baal Shem Tov viewed things, that's not really an acceptable position. Well, at the same time, we're not suggesting that Maimonides himself was primitive. In his time, that was the going, that, that was uh, the accepted way of thinking. Thank you. Rabbi. Thank you. Rabbi. Yes, sir. You know, except that, you know, what Amit brought up is, is very pertinent in a way, because even in our discussion today, um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai believed in the whole Hashkara Pratis thing. Now, 600 years later, Rambam comes up with his principle that he says, no, 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 you know, it doesn't apply to these things. Then, you know, what is it? Uh, another 700 years later with the Baal Shem Tov, they go back kind of to the way that it was in the time of the Amorim, you know, so it, it, it went both ways. So in other words, you can ask a better question. Was the Rambam not aware of what Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai was, was saying? No, of course not. So that's what the Rebbe alludes to that, although the Rebbe does not go into details um, in the third paragraph of the, of the Sicha that we just brought here. Um, it says, now it's important to point out the distinction between the Guide to the Perplexed and, and the Mishnah Torah. When it comes to Jewish law, all of Rambam's principles are, you know, they stand up to scrutiny. But when it comes to, to, to philosophy, you know, it's, it's an entirely different ballgame. And the Rebbe says that there are ways to explain Rambam's approach. But if we want to talk about philosophy in a, how do you say, in, in a linear fashion, you know, the past and then the present and then towards the future. So the Rambam was of a more, uh, you know, in other words, it's very hard to say such a thing about the Rambam, but essentially what's, what's happening after the Baal Shem Tov, this approach of the Rambam became outdated, became an outdated approach. Okay. Now we've come to a new level of understanding. Those that want to understand the Rambam and really say like, how could it be that the Rambam did not know what Rabbi Yechon said, certainly they're able to find ways of how to, reevaluate, reframe, put into a new context Rambam's words to see how they are still pertinent and, and, uh, and relevant today as well. Okay. All righty. I'm glad we were able to have this discussion. It's, it's one of the most uh, deep and I would say complex and difficult discussions uh, that you would find in, in Jewish philosophy. And Hasidus really comes and makes a, a complete revolution on the whole idea. The main thing is that we have to apply it to our own lives and this is something that we could learn uh, of how, in other words with with this teaching we could truly reframe our entire life experience um, and and lead a more meaningful and mindful life not just in those things that are clearly holy and jewish but how every single moment of life could be truly a, a divine experience Alrighty, thank you all for joining us this afternoon, and I look forward to seeing you. Um, if you've signed up for the JLI, we'll see you on Tuesday. Uh, some of you will see you even tonight, tomorrow. Uh, this class will continue next week, Sunday at 3.30. We'll do another teaching of the Rebbe. Take care. Thank you, Rabbi. I have one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Yes. Question? Uh, about Tuesday. Um, yes. Can I access it from this same?